The Apostle Peter exhorts us this way. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to those, to him who judges justly. So believe it or not, just like Peter, you and I live in a hierarchical world. And this commandment really serves to underscore our classic dilemma, and that is, what recourse do I have when someone in authority abuses their power? To what extent am I required to obey? And when should I disobey? How can I gain the wisdom to know the difference? And is it ever permissible to engage in open rebellion? In our country, we have a ready answer to this question. You may recognize the words from our Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. I urge you, my brothers and sisters, like the noble Bereans, to search the scriptures to see if these things are true. They are not true. It is not the consent of the governed that provides the authority behind human rulers. It is divine authority. 
It is not the right of the people to abolish an unsatisfactory government. That is God's prerogative. It is, I'm just not saying that a rebellious people can't be the agents of God's wrath, but still, they are not blameless when they act in this capacity. It is not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that is paramount, but the glory of God. We have a national problem with authority. We don't know how to respond to legitimate authority, and this comes right from the very root of our existence as a nation. I'm sure King George was in the wrong when he imposed taxes on the colonists without permitting them to have representation in Parliament. But was he really worse than the Emperor Nero, whom Peter exhorts us to honor? You've heard that Nero fiddled while Rome burned. That's probably not true. But he did arrange for the execution of his mother and his stepbrother. And he also arranged for the ritual sacrifice of Christians as scapegoats for the great fire of Rome, probably because he was afraid that he would serve as the scapegoat in their stead if he didn't come up with someone. In order to gain wisdom on how far we need to go in obedience to your parents, I would like to briefly discuss three illustrative examples from the life of someone who I think you will agree did it perfectly. And that person is none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. First illustrations from the Gospel of Luke, the only event in Jesus' childhood where we actually see him interacting with his parents. Luke chapter 2, verses 20, 41 through 52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing to him to be in a group, they went a day's journey, but then... They began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and answering their questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I were searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now I want you to notice Jesus' age. He's 12 years old here. The next year would be his bar mitzvah, and he would officially become an adult in Jewish society. 
It would take on the responsibilities of adulthood, and that included the annual requirement to go to attend the Feast of Passover. But he wasn't required to go that year. Now, whether or not women were required to go was a matter of debate between the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel, one of which was more liberal than the other. But we do know that women sometimes didn't go to the Passover from the story of Hannah that Seth mentioned briefly. After Samuel was born, she didn't go to the Passover in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 22. We also know that from this passage that Mary and her husband Joseph attended along with their son Jesus. We also know that when his parents departed from Jerusalem, Jesus stayed behind without their knowledge, so presumably he was not with them. Now maybe he was with his cousin John. John was about eight months older than Jesus, so maybe he was 13 and had to be because he'd already had his bar mitzvah. Name? Again, hypothetically speaking, maybe Joseph had important carpentry business back in Nazareth that he needed to attend to. Maybe he was finishing up a cabinet for the local rabbi. And uh, he wanted his eldest son's assistance in finishing up the work at the shop. So we'll be all right if young Jesus wants to go along with his cousin John and visit his Aunt Elizabeth and Uncle Zechariah. But just make sure that he gets going in the morning because there's urgent business that he needs to attend to in his father's house. So, here's Joseph and Mary the next morning for their departure from Jerusalem. Okay, we got uh, James and Joseph and Simeon and Jude and... The sisters, I don't know how many sisters there were, okay? But the sisters, and where's Jesus? I don't know. He's a reliable boy. He's almost an adult now. He's always proven himself to be reliable. He knows his father's got important business. We'll probably meet up with him in Shechem tonight. So they pull into Shechem, and they know Jesus. You know, it's hard to keep track of a bunch of kids. Uh, when my son Jason was eight, I was watching him, and he asked if he could go play with his friend Brent, who lived about a block away. And I couldn't see any harm in that, so I said, sure. About an hour later, I got a call from Brent's mother. Is, is Brent at our house? I said, uh, no. Isn't he at your house playing with Jason? No. Uh, so we started looking for the boys. Uh, we looked all over for the boys and called for them, and they were nowhere to be found. So we called the police. Do you know what it feels like to be a parent who has made a mistake that might put your child in jeopardy? I was scared to death. I was embarrassed. I had to tell his mother. I was going to kill him <laughs> when I found him. Well, fortunately, the police were there taking the police report when he and his friend showed up. They'd been playing in a local ravine, hadn't been uh, uh, heard us calling, and 
Um, I didn't kill him. But I, I did let the police scare him by suggesting that maybe they would have to take him into the station for his crime. I can't imagine how frantic I would have been after three days. Listen to me. Can't imagine. So back in Jerusalem, it all turns out to be a big misunderstanding. What was so urgent at the temple at the time? I don't know. Maybe the high priest Annas and his son Caiaphas needed a little instruction in the word of the Lord. You think? Historically, we know that this is the year that the zealot movement took off. And this movement was going to erupt in Jerusalem to the point that it led to a Roman response that leveled the city, leveled the temple, and exiled the Jews for over 2,000 years. So maybe there were some important things going on that were being discussed in the temple at the time. Our text doesn't say But in any case, we can be certain Jesus was doing precisely what he'd been told in the house of his father. Did you catch what it said in verse 52? Jesus increased in wisdom. It's hard to imagine the eternal son of God increasing in wisdom. But you know, I bet being under the authority of a couple of sinners was something that he wasn't used to. It's something that stretches us. How do we honor an authority who falls short of the mark, who doesn't fully understand the big picture? The answer is easy, simple obedience. We live with the consequences of the errors of our parents. Calvin puts it this way. If any should object that there are many ungodly and wicked fathers whom their children cannot regard with honor without destroying the distinction between good and evil, the reply is easy. That the perpetual law of nature is not subverted by the sins of men. And therefore, however unworthy of honor a father may be, that he still retains, inasmuch as he is a father, his right over his children provided it does not in any way derogate from the judgment of God. I think most of you know that I'm a retired Army officer. In the U.S. Army, we call an officer who is senior in rank our superior officer. In the U.S. Navy, they make a point of referring to an officer who is senior in rank as the senior officer. Their point, and it's a good one, is that regardless of the fact that a senior officer may be inferior in the qualities of officership to his junior, he remains senior. Kudos to the United States Navy. So the authority divinely invested in our parents and other people in positions of authority requires obedience even when their decisions are imperfect. Second point, a little bit more difficult. The authority divinely invested in our parents and other people in positions of authority requires obedience even when their motives are sinful. Second illustration is from John, chapter 2. 
verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars for the Jewish ritual of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with wine, and they filled them up to the brim. And when he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went to Capernaum, where his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So at this point, Jesus is no longer a child, uh, but he remains under obligation to his mother. Um, the obligation to honor our parents does not end, as we may think, at adulthood, but continues. His mother is worried that the hosts have run out of wine. Why was that? It wasn't because she wanted more wine. Okay? It's because the hosts were friends, probably also poor, and she was worried that they would be embarrassed that they ran out of wine and didn't have enough to serve their guests. She knows that her son Jesus has the power, and so she asks him to set things right. But he turns her down. Her request, while motivated by kindness, is denied. The time and place is not in accord with the divine will. So what does Mary do? She sins. A little, small sin. Motivated by a heart of compassion, but a rebellion nonetheless. Like Moses striking the rock in the desert. She uses a position of authority to get what she wants. So what are we to do when someone in authority has transgressed and we being under their authority are co-opted into their misguided plan? Note, Jesus does not sin here. He honors his mother in obedience despite the fact that she is in the wrong. The authority divinely invested in our parents and other people in positions of authority requires obedience even when their motives are sinful. Okay, so we understand obedience is important, but surely, surely there are limits to human authority. Not everyone's motives are as pure as the mother of our Lord. Even today, in our enlightened and rationalistic age, 
we recognize in some foggy, muddle-headed way that there is a power higher than our national authority. But we're no longer quite certain exactly who that is or what he commands. Let me give you an extended contemporary example of this phenomenon. On December, on December 7th, 1941, the sovereign empire of Japan launched a surprise bombing attack prior to a formal declaration of war against U.S. forces stationed at Pearl Harbor. This was done as a preventive measure to keep the U.S. Pacific Fleet from interfering with military actions they had planned in Southeast Asia. This action was later determined to be an act of aggressive war and was felt to justify our violent defensive response. Five years roughly later, 16 October, 1946, ten officials of the sovereign German Reich were hanged for violation of international law for crimes against humanity, war crimes, the waging of aggressive war, and conspiracy against peace. Unfortunately, these laws were not written at the time of their violation, nor had the German Reich ever signed up to fall under them. For the most part, it could be argued that most of these officials were acting on the instructions of their legitimate government superiors, a claim the defense rejected as illegitimate, or the tribunal rejected as illegitimate. Unsurprisingly also, the International Tribunal did not indict any allied officials for similar crimes. For example, I bring to mind Colonel Paul Tibbetts. Colonel Tibbetts was the pilot of the Enola Gay B-52 bomber, and he was responsible for dropping the atomic bomb, Little Boy, on the city of Hiroshima, resulting in the death of over 100,000 people, most of them civilians. For this action, Colonel Tibbetts was rewarded the Distinguished Service Cross, your nation's second highest military honor for his extraordinary heroism in the incident. Let's fast forward 50 years. On the 20th of March, 2003, <coughs> the United States and her allies launched a surprise bombing attack on the Republic of Iraq with no formal declaration of war as a preventive measure based on intelligence reports suggesting that Iraq's president, Saddam Hussein, might have in his possession weapons of mass destruction, similar to those wielded by Colonel Tibbetts, that he might deploy in a future operation in Southwest Asia. When Mr. Hussein was captured, he too was tried under a special tribunal, convened under the authority of his captors, and hanged for war crimes on 5 November 2006. Saddam Hussein was the head of state of an independent nation who was captured by a foreign invader 
based on intelligence reports that were never substantiated. Now, I'm not saying that he wasn't an evil man, but the question I pose to you, a question that Mr. Hussein specifically voiced is, what higher human authority exists with a legitimate right to condemn and execute him for his wrongdoing? Listen to what Paul has to say in his letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, any one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you really think? any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment. Our third point then is this. The authority divinely invested in our parents and other people in positions of authority is subordinate to the higher authority of God's own commands. Third illustration comes from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in the parable, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder the house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. And whoever blasphemes, whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brother are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now this episode is recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels. But I chose this reading from Mark because I think it illustrates the setting in which Jesus delivers this sharp rebuke to his closest kin. Jesus' family comes to see him, comes to get him, because he was causing trouble. They didn't want any trouble. He was upsetting the authorities. Maybe they even were afraid for his life. They just wanted him to come home so they could talk to him quietly and talk some sense into the man. 
So what did they do? They cooked up a lie. They said he's crazy. For Christ to go along with them at this point would be for him to endorse their lie. Jesus himself would be participating in the lie. This is where Jesus draws the line. As the apostles said to the Jewish authorities in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. It would be very difficult to overestimate the damage this lie did. Did you ever wonder where the Pharisees got the idea that Jesus was casting out demons through the power of demons? He got it from Jesus' own family. They said he was crazy, possessed by a demon. Jesus' enemies took that and ran with it all the way to Golgotha. It was all the other people in particular demands our obedience even when it exercises authority and when their motives are sinful but it's kind unfortunately the heart of the matter has got That doesn't mean that everyone who honors their parents is going to live a long life. But the fact of the matter is, respect for the authority of the family is a basic building block of society. The erosion of authority and respect in the family leads providentially to the erosion of of authority and respect in society and inexorably to rebellion and exile. This is what happened in Jerusalem. This is what will happen in our land. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us. Your son Jesus lamented at his unfulfilled longing to gather the children of the royal city as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But their hearts were unwilling. Fill our hearts with the fear of your displeasure, for our feet will rush to obey. May your commands rule in our homes, in our land, and in our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Please stand.